One of the best experiences of college for me was the privilege to study abroad. It introduced me to a different culture, a different history, a different language, a simple way of living. I went to Lithuania, which definitely does not have the same affluence as we have in America. And so I loved this exposure, but being honest, I recognized that it didn't quite transform me. It informed me, but I wasn't quite transformed. And I'll give you an example to show you. A couple of years later, I was teaching English in the Czech Republic just a couple countries away so that I could continue to, to beef up my exposure to, to um, Central Europe. And I wanted to, to travel to Lithuania to visit some friends who were there. And I have this incredibly vivid memory of my time there. I don't know if you, if you kind of laugh because your, your brain has kind of left you, but there are certain things that you can remember down to the last detail, and it feels kind of silly and embarrassing sometimes. This was one of those experiences. I remember traveling on the train, wearing high-heeled boots so that I could try to fit in with European culture, carrying not one, but two huge suitcases, traveling from the Czech Republic to Lithuania, and it ended up being a two-day journey for me. And I remember lugging around those two heavy suitcases, running with my high-heeled boots across the gravel from one train to the next so that I wouldn't miss the connecting train. Then when I got there, I remember opening my suitcases. Now, one of them was for the necessities, and the other was chock full of Christmas presents for myself. My mom had mailed me a large box of Christmas presents, and I wanted to open them on Christmas. So I decided to put them into this huge suitcase and bring them with me so that I could open them on Christmas. Well, I was staying with some missionary friends of mine who had four kids and decided to stay um, in that area to be missionaries, to teach at the college, and to befriend the international students who were there, many who were not Christian. They invited many of them over for Christmas, those who weren't able to go to their home countries, and we celebrated Christmas together. So I brought all of my gifts down and opened the presents all by myself. And I thought, well, maybe I'll ask the person next to me, you know, like what he's planning on opening when he goes home. And he told me, I never have gifts to open. Wow. That was pretty embarrassing. It felt awful. Sometime later during that trip, I, I have this distinct memory of being in the car with my missionary friend, with the husband, and I was sharing a little bit, uh, being a little vulnerable, and I said, you know, sometimes I'm afraid to pray because I'm afraid of what God will ask of me. I'm especially afraid that God will say, give away everything you have and give to the poor, kind of like the man in our story. And instead of offering me a consolation, he looked at me with a kind smile and said, 
Imagine God saying that to you when you have four kids and a wife to take care of. Now, frankly, I feel like apologizing to you because I really wanted to offer a lighter sermon after last week's sermon on divorce. I really tried. I looked at the other texts for today and they were just as hard. I even tried writing a different introduction and I felt like it wasn't very honest. So I rewrote it to be honest. Now, two hard sermons in a row seems like an intentional form of cruel and unusual punishment, but I want to promise you that neither did I choose these texts nor would I ever have chosen to preach them in succession. But this is exactly how Mark lays them out in his gospel, and this is also how the lectionary lays out the preaching texts, one right after the other. This is both one of the challenges and gifts of utilizing the lectionary. You're challenged and sometimes forced to preach a sermon that you would not otherwise have given. My guess is that when you had the gospel, when you heard the gospel text read, maybe you felt a twinge, or maybe a large twinge, of pain, guilt, or possibly even fear that God might be calling you to do just what God called this man to do. Or potentially worse, you feared that I chose this text so that I could talk about stewardship to the church. <laughs> I promise you, I didn't choose the text, and I'm also not here to encourage you to give to the church, so you can relax, kind of. This is another one of those odd and uncomfortable texts. And what I'd like us to do, what I'd like to invite us to do, is to sit with this text and allow it to challenge us instead of quickly dismissing it because it was one man's story and it feels really uncomfortable. Because Jesus' call to this man was specific and unusual. But my guess is that we might not be so different from the man in the story. Now this man was a religious man, a Jewish man, and he recognized that there was something different, something special about Jesus. He recognized that Jesus seemed to have a handle on the truth that other teachers didn't have. Jesus offered surprising answers. He upset people, yet he had a steady following. He was provocative, but not for provocative's sake. The man wants to learn from Jesus. He's desperate to learn from him, we can tell, because he embarrasses himself by making a beeline, running and embarrassing himself, falling at Jesus' feet, begging him to tell him how, what he must do to inherit eternal life. Good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops him right there. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Ah, this is not some light conversation. Jesus' question provokes the man to consider to whom he's addressing his question. Is Jesus just a teacher? So should he have just called him teacher? Or is he good? And is he therefore God? Well, we don't know what the man internalizes, how the man now thinks of Jesus, if he thinks that he is the good teacher or just teacher. But Jesus goes on. 
Now, let's understand a little bit, a little bit more here. The man asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. For us, we might get this idea that he's talking about this otherworldly heaven or future, but he's talking about the age to come, a time that will happen on earth, a big event that will happen on earth that will bring justice and peace, freedom for Israel and punishment for evildoers. It will be a time of prosperity when all the prophecies will be fulfilled and the, all the righteous dead will be raised to new life and the world will burst out into a new and endless spring. As theologian N.T. Wright writes, the question pressing on any Jew who believed this was, can I be sure that I will inherit the age to come? And if so, how? This man needs to know that he'll inherit the age to come. He can't wait. He needs to be a part of it. So he runs and falls at Jesus' feet to ask him, this teacher. Other teachers of the day, such as Pharisees and Essenes, also would have been asked questions like this. And they would have replied with their own detailed interpretation of the Jewish law, and then probably would have urged you to join their group, whether it was the Pharisee group, the Essene group, or whatever group they were. Once you knew exactly how to follow the law and that you became a follower of this leader, you would have the security of knowing that you would inherit the age to come. But in response to this man, Jesus doesn't reinterpret the law. He instead tells the man, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not get, give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus recounts the commandments that are on the horizontal axis, the commandments to one another. But the interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't quite say it exactly right. I don't know if we have any recent confirmands here. Jesus doesn't say, you shall not covet. Jesus instead says, you shall not defraud. Maybe he says this on purpose so that the man can agree that he has kept all of the commandments. It seems like that's a good guess because that's just what the man does. He says with confidence that he's kept all of these commandments since he was a boy. The man, we find out later in the story, has great wealth. And what the man has, he seems to declare that he's obtained honestly. He hasn't defrauded anyone. But perhaps he can't say that he hasn't coveted, that he doesn't covet. What he has isn't enough. He has amassed great wealth for himself and therefore a great standing in the community and on top of that great spiritual standing because wealth was seen as God's favor. It was seen as God's blessing for those who did what God wanted. So he's rich, life is pretty easy for him. He has a good standing in the community and in the religious community. He's doing pretty well. But he wants more, more and more and more. And you know this because he wants the age to come too. It's a good thing to want, but he needs to know that he will inherit this. 
And, G- and as Jesus calls it, it's the kingdom of God. Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows that this man loves possessions. Verse 21 says, Jesus looks at him and loves him. And then he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus sees this man, how he truly is, and he loves him. And he tells him then to give up everything because he loves the man. Jesus isn't angry. He doesn't look at the man with pity. He doesn't try to be impossible. Jesus knows the man's heart, that it's captive to possessions, and that he needs to be freed from them in order to follow Jesus and participate in Jesus' mission in the world. Now, as Western Christians, we are quick to make permissions for money and possessions. I can't tell you how many times I've heard 1 Timothy highlighted, 1 Timothy 6.10, which states that the love of money is the root of all evil. And then I've heard money emphasized as being neutral. It's simply our orientation to money that's the problem. That's not wrong. But the problem is we quickly move on from those statements, not recognizing that we, like the man, are probably in love with our money and possessions. Christian philosopher Jacques Ellul wrote a book entitled Money and Power, which is a provocative challenge to our relationship with money. He writes, love in the Bible is utterly totalitarian. It comes from the entire person, it involves the whole person, and binds the whole person without distinction. Ultimately, we follow what we have loved most intensely, either into eternity or into death. To love money is to be condemned to follow in its destruction, its disappearance, its annihilation, and its death. Because one day, money will be no more. Biblical love cannot stand sharing. We cannot halt between two opinions. We can neither serve nor love two masters. Because love makes us follow the beloved and nothing else, we cannot love two things at the same time. In Mark 10, Jesus' call to the man was not to be more generous. It wasn't to love Jesus too, love your possessions, but love me too. It wasn't even to reprioritize. His call to the man was to desacralize his possessions, to act against the power his possessions had on him, to no longer love his possessions or to be their servant. His was a call to exchange that love for the love of God demonstrated in the love of neighbor. But the man's heart was set. He could not loosen his hold on his possessions to generously love God and give to his neighbor. So he walked away sad because he had great wealth. So, what do we do with this passage? Do we say that only this man was called to this so we can go on with our married lives? 
Do we take the opposite approach and say, well, now everyone must give up everything that they have? Well, neither polar opposite is consistent with Scripture. Scripture is clear that everyone has a unique calling. I can't tell you what God is calling you to do with the money and possessions with which God has entrusted you. That's between you and God. Know that when money and possessions are given, it's not in an effort to please God so that he'll love you. God already loves you. You don't need to do something to earn it. This passage is a challenge to you and to me to recognize what it is that we truly love. And we're invited not to walk away, not to walk away from Jesus. We're encouraged to desacralize money and possessions by holding them loosely and giving freely. Because in the act of giving, we begin to break our love of money, break the bond that money and possessions have on us by placing our love of God and neighbor in its stead. And the amazing grace of this whole story is that like the man, our story isn't done. You and I will vacillate between the loves of our lives. I'm sorry, it's true. We will. The lure of money will continue to come and come and come. But Jesus doesn't walk away. He continues to look on you and me with love and call us into a deeper relationship with him and with our neighbor. So may, the lo may we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, so that we may look more and more like Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that like in this story, Jesus doesn't simply call the man to give up everything, but he looks on him with love. He knows exactly where this man is, and Jesus knows exactly where we are. God, we pray that our hearts would be solely for you, that money and possessions would be something that are of no consequence to us, that we can hold loosely because we know that we have confidence in you and that money and possessions are something that you have entrusted to us to love you and to love our neighbor. So we pray that that would not have its hold on us, that we would be generous with one another and with you. God, we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts and minds into the likeness of Jesus, your son. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us, never giving up on us, never leaving us, nor forsaking us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.